Um, good morning and welcome to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Uh, my name is Janice Kunkel and I'm a member of the Gospel of Life Ministry here. Uh, our committee strives to increase the awareness and to promote discussion um, about issues that relate to our Catholic respect for life. In addition to pro-life support, in the past we've had programs addressing human trafficking, decisions of conscience, religious freedom, and pornography. We provide and we, we plan future programs addressing drug abuse, support for adoption and foster families, and many other issues. In order to provide this wonderful programming, we do ask for your support if you're able. Uh, we have a basket for donations backed by the coffee and donuts, and then uh, we will have a basket to pass when Dr. Rodden does her question and answer um, after her talk. And uh, we appreciate any support that you can give us so we can have these programs. Um, you should all have pamphlets and resources with a prayer card at your seat. If um, we, we have a great turnout here, so if you don't have those at your seat, we have them on the table in the back here. And those of you that are visiting Our Lady of Mount Carmel for the first time, our restrooms are out either door and then around kind of on the other side of this wall. Um, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Natalie Rodden. Uh, Dr. Rodden, she's a palliative medicine specialist at St. Anthony North Health Campus in Westminster, Colorado. She currently leads an inpatient palliative care consultation service and serves as the co-chair of her hospital's ethics committee. She's a member of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine and the Catholic Medical Association. Dr. Rodden earned her, M her BA from the University of Notre Dame here in Indiana. Uh, and <laughs> and her MD from Tulane University. While in medical school, she founded the Catholic Medical Association Student Section. It's a national organization with a goal of preparing students to uphold the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And I recently looked at their website and they now have 26 chapters. So I think that's pretty impressive. Um, Dr. Rodden completed her internal medicine residency at the University of Utah and palliative medicine fellowship at the Mayo Clinic Mayo Clinic of Arizona. She's board certified in internal medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. She was active in advancing efforts of support for Catholic health care workers in the Archdiocese of New Orleans and the Diocese of Salt Lake City. Her fellowship research on improving spiritual competency at the Mayo Clinic focused on encouraging a culture of awareness and comfort of health providers in addressing spiritual issues, notably at the end of life. Dr. Rodden is working on initiatives to improve education and awareness about palliative care and advocate against physician-assisted suicide locally and nationally. So let's welcome Dr. Rodden. Good morning. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Can everyone hear me okay, even in the back? Okay. And so I have a, I love speaking in the fall because I often use the theme of fall leaves in my talk and the beautiful fall foliage. And although fall hasn't hit Indianapolis too much yet, uh, it's already, uh, the aspens are turning out in Colorado. And I use the fall foliage as a metaphor for the beauty that I witness in the field of palliative medicine. Because for the most beautiful time for a leaf is just before it falls. And when I take care of patients with chronic illness or nearing the end of life, the beauty that I see and the richness of their personhood, it astounds me. And I work to care for them holistically as they near the end of life. And so I'm hoping I can share that beauty with you today. Uh, many people might think what I do is sad or depressing, but honestly, I find it so joyful 
to care for people. And there's so many be beautiful things about, about this work. And um, hopefully I can share and educate you today that in, in things that will be helpful for you and for your families. I would like to start with a prayer, if you'd please join me. And this is a prayer written by uh, St. Padre Pio uh, for trust and confidence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, we ask for a boundless confidence and trust in your divine mercy and the courage to accept the crosses and sufferings which bring immense goodness to our souls and that of your church. Help us to love you with a pure and contrite heart and to humble ourselves beneath your cross as we climb the mountain of holiness carrying our cross that leads to heavenly glory. May we receive you with great faith and love and holy communion and allow you to act in us as you desire for your greater glory. O oh Jesus, most adorable heart and eternal fountain of divine love, may our prayer find favor before the divine majesty of your heavenly Father. Amen. So you may have seen a, a physician give a talk before where they give disclosures about maybe they're involved with uh, some sort of pharmaceutical company. I don't have any disclosures like that, but the disclosures I do have are that I'm Catholic and I love my faith, and I'm passionate about advocating for the sanctity of life, especially when it's nearing its earthly end, and I'm passionate about sharing about what I do, how palliative medicine provides care for those with serious illness and at the end of life with dignity and love that is completely consistent with Catholic teaching. So get ready. Um, I'm excited, and I can be a bit joyful about this. <laughs> um, so today what I'll be doing, I'll be reviewing uh, and hopefully explaining, uh, the shedding light on the state of suffering and death in the world today and in our culture and what has created a, a really difficult situation. I'll be defining what palliative medicine is and what hospice care is and how they're different. And I'll be revealing how end-of-life care can be successfully practiced, specifically in light of our Catholic faith. So I decided I would probably start back at the beginning. And you can't get too much farther than 400 BC. Well, you can. But I decided I'd sort of start thinking about the way our world is today with thinking back to early medical ethics. And has anyone heard of the Hippocratic Oath or Hippocrates? Yeah. And so this is a, a widely known uh, philosopher. Um, and he was a physician and wrote about um, what it means to be an ethical physician. And it's one of our earliest forms of medical ethics. And in medical schools today, uh, physicians, even to this day, still take a version of this oath. And it's one of the earliest expressions of medical ethics and establishes several principles that we still hold. And it's interesting because in this oath from 400 BC, it, it, it talks about medical confidentiality, it talks about doing good to the patient, it even mentions not performing abortions or physician-assisted suicide. So it's really interesting. And so it's pretty challenging when you think about going from there to where we are today. In the top, a picture of Jack Kevorkian, who you may have heard of, who, with his suicide machine, really popularized this notion of euthanasia. And Brittany Maynard on the right, who decided that with her diagnosis of brain cancer, that she would move to Oregon, which, where at that time was one of the few places in the United States where it was legal to get a, a lethal dose of medications from a physician to end her life. And she kind of became this glorified or glamorous view of, of what it means to die with dignity. And so thinking about how did we get here? And so I thought I would take a few slides to talk about what 
what dying looks like today. And I think a lot of it stems from our discomfort with, with the idea of suffering and our culture's idea. And suffering can come from so many different forms, especially when you have chronic illness and nearing the end of life. So you have physical suffering, emotional, uh, mental suffering can manifest in many ways. And all the advances in medicine today have enabled us to live longer. Um, but we're now living with these chronic illnesses that before we wouldn't be able to keep maintaining people's health, but now we can. And sometimes these require frequent hospitalizations, a lot of interventions, and we can throw all this technology at our bodies to keep us alive for longer. But, but because we can do this, it raises the question, should we do this? And at what cost should we do this? Uh, the end of life is becoming more difficult to predict, to define. It lasts longer than it used to. And the US healthcare system in general looks at death as it's uh, this attacker from the outside. Like death is this enemy that we need to try to defeat, like the concept of immortality, which death is inevitable part of the human condition. And so um, death becomes this, um, this force of evil to be, to be against. Let's, here we are. And so he, this man goes to the sorcerer. Do you have anything that stops the aging process? Sure, what kind of disease would you like? <laughs> <laughs> and so how did we get into these dilemmas? In, in our society, it seems that we're doing increasingly all we can to avoid suffering, even suffering that's inevitable even death. And so because of this, there's this huge push to accelerate any sort of suffering period, to make, make that go away. And so we just want to get to death as soon as possible. Let's, let's decrease this process. Let's stop suffering at any cost. And so suffering uh, becomes this, um, this evil that, and we, we don't support suffering but as, as Catholics, but, but suffering then becomes this thing to avoid at all costs, which then becomes something like euthanasia comes into the picture because we can just avoid any, pro any, any process once we get this diagnosis. And so there's this unrelieved pain and suffering and prolonged illness. That's this concept of, uh, I'm going to be suffering so much now that I have this disease, or I'm getting cancer. And, and so it leads to this cry for death. Let's just expedite the process. And so there's this misguided compassion in our culture today. Rather than addressing the lack of relief, really addressing what's going on. Why are you suffering? Is it pain? Is it emotional distress that's related to this diagnosis? And then family and loved ones agonize. They see that their loved one's suffering, and they feel uncomfortable. I want to put you out of my misery. I have a parent with dementia, and I can't see that. I don't, I, I, I'm suffering by watching them. And they feel really uncomfortable with this. Um, and so it just becomes part of this culture. And, and, so, and especially with technology um, really coming in, because we can do this, um, because this is legal now in some states, it trumps what we should do. Um, and, and so essentially we wish to control the process. We wish to control our situation. And so a few thoughts on control. We have a couple sitting together and he says, just so you know, I never want to be, uh, sorry, I never want to live in a vegetative state dependent on some machine. If that ever happens, just unplug me, okay? Okay. Hey, he unplugs me. <laughs> And so, in, in our world today, there's these increasing pressures about resources and financial costs. 
which is even exacerbated more because of the aging of ba the baby boomer population. And then there's this, these pressures of allocation. How do, we, how do we use our resources? How do we judge quality of life? Uh, what is the value of a person's life? Who deserves to live? Who doesn't? Who is a burden? And there's all sorts of these movements that come up. The right to die, the duty to die, death with compassion, um, the Hemlock Society, which now is in its version is, is compassion and choices, um, using these different words. And it brings us to this scary connection that with limited resources and the pressure to limit them, um, combines with our fear of suffering, and then this pressure for euthanasia because of the baby boomer reality is exacerbated by our culture not wanting to suffer. Um, and, and it creates this perfect storm. And it's true that we use a lot of healthcare finances occur at the end of our lives. And we do need to be a good steward. And this is just a graph showing where, where the cost expenditures happen. And so the majority of costs are happening at the end of life. But that doesn't mean that we don't care for people or um, we, have to, we have to think about it differently. It doesn't mean that we destroy the sufferer rather than addressing the suffering. And so I thought just to put this in a better perspective, I'd give a real patient case because it always helps to give an example. And so I'm going to be talking about Mr. W. So this is a real, a real case. Um, he's an 84-year-old male, and you may know someone like him. He has no relatives that are living. He has a progressive neurological condition. He has Parkinson's disease. And he has a lot of arthritis, joint pain with that. He has trouble walking, and he's been falling. He actually broke his hip. He's developed difficulty swallowing, and he's having problems with aspiration, which is where when you get, uh, he goes down the wrong pipe. So he's getting issues with swallowing safely. He's losing weight, and he's losing the ability to speak. And so thinking about Mr. W, what should be done next? He's had multiple hospitalizations. Sounds like he's a burden on society. He's costing the healthcare system a lot of money. He's obviously suffering, right? So shouldn't he have the right to die? His quality of life must be really bad. Maybe we should just expedite this process. Maybe we should take him out of his misery. Well, as a physician, you know, it's always good to take a look at a patient before you make any judgments. Maybe we should look and examine Mr. W. Look familiar? Mr. W is Carol Oitiwa. This is, this is his medical situation. Each one life, each one soul is so essentially important. And this one man, while battling this progressive disease of Parkinson's, which he knew could not be cured, multiple assassination attempts, and cancer. He managed to make 104 international trips, visited 130 countries, he advocated against world wars, he brought world religious leaders together to dialogue, he wrote prolifically encyclicals and apostolic exhortations and letters. Oh yeah, and now he's a saint. So. <laughs> and he wrote a lot on suffering and I really love this document called Salavici Dolores, which was a letter he wrote in 1984 on really what is the meaning of suffering for the human condition. And he writes that those who share in Christ's suffering have before their eyes the paschal mystery of the cross and resurrection, where Christ descends to the ultimate limits of human weakness. You know, this power of the resurrection um, can be infused with our sufferings. Our sufferings can have greater meaning. 
uh, really demonstrating the salvific powers of God. I really encourage you to read this uh, if you haven't, if you're struggling with the idea of suffering, and it's on my uh, yellow, that yellow handout you have, um, in case you're interested. And, and just, you can just Google it online. But, you know, alternatively, people in our culture, they approach suffering so much differently than John Paul II. And in thinking about the world we live in today, I think about my own state that I currently live in, in Colorado. And on November 8th, in 2016, so almost two years ago, physician-assisted suicide was made legal in my state. And it was the day after I took my 13-hour palliative medicine board exam. And it was profound. I just wept because God called me, I felt, to this state, and now this is law. And it totally undermines everything that I try to do as a Catholic palliative medicine doctor. And now it's, it, Colorado has joined other states, and it has really impacted our culture. Uh, it, it affects it on in so many levels, and the way people address suffering, and the way they address their health, and even a new diagnosis. Um, I, I'm grateful to work for a Catholic hospital, and so we've opted out of being involved in any way. But the understanding and the relationship to suffering that this law has twisted in Colorado is evident to me on nearly a daily basis. I want to do my part in helping to creatively work to reduce suffering and relieve suffering for my patients without eliminating the sufferer. And so it, it's been really challenging. And I thought too it might be helpful um, just in case you didn't know um, how physician-assisted suicide is different than euthanasia. And a lot of times people you might use the words interchangeably. So euthanasia um, comes from the Greek um, meaning good death. And so to euthanize someone is, is it's a verb. So it's actually like a lethal injection um, to kill. It's an active process. So euthanasia is illegal. Um, it, physician assisted suicide is the physician prescribing a, a cocktail of medications uh, that, the, that the patient would, would get at a pharmacy and then mix and then take themselves. Um, so the patient, there's a process to get it um, and it's more of a indirect role or a passive process that the physician is doing. And so they are slightly different. They're both, you know, not good at all. But um, so just as you think about them, I think a lot of uh, people might use them interchangeably, but they are slightly different. And so physician-assisted suicide is what's legal now in several states. And so in thinking about why people want physician-assisted suicide, so Oregon is the state where physician-assisted suicide was first legal. And it wasn't, you, I mean, I think I used to think, well, it would be uncontrolled pain or uncontrolled anxiety or something. But it's not. You know, we're actually good. We can really have, we have medicines and we have specialists. We can manage pain. We can manage anxiety. Um, you know, we should be able to do that. But it's this loss of autonomy, this decreasing ability to participate in activities that made life enjoyable, this feeling of loss of dignity. And it's been really interesting for me in my, in my studies of this movement and how it's kind of adopted the word dignity. And I, I, I wanted to look up what dignity means. You know, and I just looked up a dictionary definition and it said the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. And so when you look up dignity online, death with dignity, you get websites like this Death with Dignity Movement, which is this national center working at increasing legislature in different states for physician-assisted suicide laws. And it's just so twisted, or how the word compassion has switched. 
you know, compassion and choices is the, it's basically what I tell people, the Planned Parenthood of the end of life movement. Um, and they come at this and it, it can kind of be disguising to people, you know, it's, oh, it's compassion, that's a good thing. Um, but they're, they're really not doing a good thing at all. And so when I think about uh, that word dignity, I thought it would be good to maybe highlight another person's view of, of dignity who had a, a very severe illness. And so I'm going to show this short video. I'm Liz, a sister, a wife, a mom of four, and I'm living with advanced incurable kidney cancer. That's the page I'm on right now. I live in Oregon where it'd be legal for me to end my life, but I can't do that. People are calling euthanasia death with dignity. The moment we label suicide an act of dignity, we've implied that people like me are undignified for not ending our lives, or worse, or a costly burden for society. What a lonely, uncharitable, and fake world we live in if we think it's somehow undignified to let people see us suffer, to love us and care for us to the end. I hate cancer. I hate cancer. And I don't surrender to the things I hate. Cancer might take my life, but I'm going to live until I die. And I'm going to fight until I die. That's dignity. Statistically, my odds are bleak. But I won't call it quits because I'm not a statistic. You see, God has the final word in my life and death, not cancer. That's not a cute phrase, it's a fact. Miracles happen every single day. There are countless people walking around who are supposed to have died years ago. And that's a possibility worth sticking around for. You know what else is worth sticking around for? Every single day I get to spend with the people I love. My life isn't a story written by cancer. It's written by love. And whenever it ends, it'll end in eternal love. And a story's end changes the meaning of every page. was never given to me to control it. My life isn't mine to take. It's mine to give. My life is given to me to love, to the end. Love is dignity. I'm facing death with dignity. think that when she said the the last page of a story you know impacts the rest of it I think that's truly important and something that I try to empower people as they're faced with very difficult diagnoses and so thinking about the end of life and with chronic illness it's it's very overwhelming and it's very normal for people to feel that overwhelming sensation that they don't understand what's going on they don't um, they don't know they feel out of control they misunderstand their maybe the course of their treatment what's coming 
um, and they, that they desire more information about how it's going to impact them and their families. What are their options? I can't tell you how many patients I see in the hospital where I ask them to tell me what they understand about their health and they say, oh, um, I'm taking chemo for my cancer and I ask if their cancer is curable and they say, I think so, but it's well documented all over the oncology, their cancer doctor's notes that it's not. And the, it's been documented for months. And so when patients are operating under this false understanding, they're probably making decisions that are different. And so it's very important um, that they get the right information. I think people generally want to have a conversation with their doctor. They want to know what's going on, not having things sugarcoated. And I think as physicians, you know, we need to be courageous to have those conversations that matter. And as Catholics, you know, it's really important we, we balance these extremes because we want to live well, and how can we live well, but not to cling to life unrealistically. So we're not vitalists, meaning life at all costs. That's not what our church teaches. Um, when we think about health care and we think about care options, you may have heard the terms ordinary or extraordinary. You know, something is ordinary, it's very basic to life. Extraordinary would be something, maybe it's extra. Maybe um, it's, it's a, it could be of a cost or it could be excessive. It's not something I have to do. But in, in the way we think about these things today, we've kind of removed ourselves from those words as much, and we think about another two kind of funny words, but proportionate and disproportionate. So proportionate merely, merely means, when you're thinking about these words, benefits and burdens. So when we think about you know, whether or not I'm going to start dialysis, or whether or not I want to try this new chemotherapy, I'm thinking about do the benefits outweigh the burdens for me um, and these sort of things. This is different than just ordinary care. This is when thinking about different treatments in the hospital. Um, or do, does it really, do the burdens outweigh the benefits? And what's interesting is that something for me that might be totally worth doing to my friend might not be. And so it's important that I help people figure that out for themselves. And so how can we, you know, thinking about all this, how can we die well? How can we live to the end of our natural life? Um, and how can we not ignore the dignity of life, especially when we cannot cure? And so what do we have in healthcare today to meet those needs of caring for those who are nearing the end of life or people who have chronic medical problems that can't be cured? And that's where I hope that I come in, in my field, in the field of palliative care. And you might say, what, pally what? You know, I think it's kind of a funny word. And, you know, what does this even mean? And so you pronounce it palliative, and it comes from the word pallium, which means to cloak. And so I kind of looked up, you know, Google image, like pallium, and guess what came up? And who wears the pallium? The Pope. Um, and so it's a really Catholic concept from the beginning. Um, and you think about with palliative care, um, we cloak people in support. And I'm going to explain about what that means. And so the definition of palliative medicine is a type of specialized medical care for people with serious illness, focused on providing patients with relief from the symptoms, pain, and stress, whatever their diagnosis is. The goal is to improve their quality of life for both the patient and the family. So I tell people, I care for you and everyone who loves you. So sometimes, like in the setting of dementia, the caregiver is where I spend a lot of attention. We worked with the patient's established care team, so we work with their doctors they have, to provide an extra layer of support. 
Again, it's appropriate at any age and at any stage in a serious illness and can be provided along with curative treatment. So palliative care, palliative medicine doesn't take away at all. It just adds to what you're getting. Palliative care can be for children, kids with cancer, kids with a chronic um, problem that they're dealing with in their families. <coughs> it can be for the elderly. It can be right when they're diagnosed with something. It can be at a time of crisis. Palliative care cares for you along with all your other doctors. If you're getting chemotherapy, if you're getting dialysis, if you're getting blood transfusions, it's just your supportive care team. And I tell people, it's the, our goal is to help you live as well as possible for as long as possible. Usually that means going to the hospital less. Usually that means um, getting your symptoms under control. Usually that means trying to make it so you can do the activities you love. Those are my goals. And I don't really have an agenda. You become my agenda. And what you want, I work for. You become your advocate. So palliative medicine is intrinsically a team. So it's not a solo sport. So typically you'll have a doctor, sometimes a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. Because we look um, at, at you not just for the disease. We look at you for your whole person. I see you, and I want to know who you are and, and how I can help you live the best life. And so we address all these sorts of things. It's a very holistic kind of approach. And again, it's for any age and at any time. And so when I see a patient, I, 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 really, I really want to know them. And so in the hospital, I give every family this picture frame that I made. And I ask them to bring in a photo that represents who the patient is and how they would like their doctors to see them. Because what we want to do is provide that humanizing touch. You know, who are you? Because the doctors may see you as another person with a stroke. And you're connected to all these tubes. Maybe, maybe you're not really clearly thinking. But I want to see you as that, that award-winning fisherman or um, that person who loves their grandchildren. And so this has been really helpful. And the doctors and the nurses, they see this and they're saying, oh yeah, wow, and I fish too, and let's connect on that. So it's been really positive. One of the founders of the palliative medicine and hospice movement, <coughs> excuse me, is Cicely Saunders. And she viewed this, um, this very holistically as well, and she uses this term total pain. And total pain really means that when you have a chronic illness and you're nearing end of life, your, your distress might just not be physical. Your distress might go much beyond that, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And so we work together with the social worker and the chaplain and the doctor to kind of address it all from our specialized areas. And I'll tell you, sometimes I have patients and the biggest issue that's bothering them is nothing I can handle physically. And it's a little bit humbling, but it's really important because sometimes it's that existential, it's that spiritual suffering that they're having that's affecting them most. Or they're really depressed. Or they're worried about finances. And so how can we address where they, where they want to be addressed? You know, they, they kind of set the stage for what's most important to them, what they're most stressed about, and then we work to relieve that stress. And I love this quote. You matter because you are, and you matter to the last moment of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. <coughs> and so when I see patients, it's not very linear. I say, this is my palliative care consult. And as we go through, we talk about different things, but <coughs> no consultation looks the same. I might talk about physical things. We might go to spiritual things. It all goes around. And you have to just be flexible. I tell my team it's a lot of improvisation. And so I'm going to briefly go through 
<coughs> the different aspects that we care for. And so in physical pain, we care from, you know, what's the symptoms from your disease or the side effects from your chemotherapy, all sorts of symptoms, <coughs> excuse me, that could be causing you distress. And as Catholics, it's okay to treat pain. It's okay to work on decreasing your pain and treating that as, as much as possible. We want to treat your pain, but we want to maintain your, your mental status and be as conscious as possible. Um, our pain medication that we give is not intended to make you more sleepy or, or cause you to die sooner. If there's a principle in, in ethics called the principle of double effect, and it's all about your intent. So if I'm giving a patient pain medication to make them breathe a little bit easier, to make them not be moaning, to not be restless, I can give them the lowest dose I can to have the effect. I'm not going to be overdosing them. I'm not going to be, you know, pain medications for people with palliative medicine issues is very different than people with chronic pain. And so the whole opioid crisis that we have, it's hard sometimes for my patients because sometimes I call it opiophobia. And I tell my patients in the clinic, you know, please let me try this medication for you at a very small dose. It's going to be safe. I think you might be able to have a shower now much easier because you will be breathing easier with your COPD. Or you're going to be able to go to lunch with your loved ones and not feel like you're in pain the whole time. <coughs> and so that's just important to realize. Emotional pain, um, people have a lot of a lot of issues, like maybe they're not as mobile as they used to be. Maybe they feel like they're a burden. Maybe they have guilt, anger, unresolved issues, financial distress. Um, this is very concerning to people. It's, it's astounding to me how often I say, what's bothering you most? And people say, I'm losing all my retirement on hospital bills. Or, we can't afford this. <coughs> what's going to happen to my loved ones after I pass away? It's not you know, my nausea or something that I would think as a physician, oh yeah, I'm going to go and fix that. Um, so it's important that I really assess where they're at. Spiritual and existential suffering is something that I think physicians often are very intimidated to address. And that's why I decided to, to study it more during my fellowship because this, this issue, the spiritual um, feeling like lack of purpose or have lost my identity, have lost who I am, this, this disease has stolen myself from me. I can't do what I used to do that gave me meaning. This is so prevalent in, in patients that I care for. And so I really wanted to study how as a physician I can address spirituality with people and how it, it's appropriate and actually really helpful. Um, these spiritual issues can, can make things difficult to trust. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm battling a cold. Um, and, and this unfinished business or unresolved issues, and if we really work with our chaplain team and we work to, it, to bring these to light, they can really shed peace on the situation. In palliative medicine, we also do <coughs> advanced care planning. You may have heard of things called advanced directives, and you may say, oh, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, or I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm going to deal with that down the road. That's not an issue I need to deal with. But I really encourage you to think about this and getting it done and having these conversations with your loved ones now, because later on, you may not have the opportunity to. And, and having your loved ones know your wishes is not a scary or depressing thing. It's actually a very a beautiful gift you're giving them, um, because they will know. And if anything ever happens, um, to you, they will know exactly that they're honoring you and respecting you how you'd want. And so I think that it's really awesome that your state um, 
the Indiana Catholic Conference has this document that talks about Catholic health care directives. And it talks about why they're important. And it goes through um, what, part, what, what this includes and the ethical principles that guide us at end of life. This is such a beautiful document. And then in the end, it gives you an opportunity to actually name what we call a medical durable power of attorney. So someone who would make decisions for you on your behalf if you ever couldn't think for yourself. So if you were in an accident, you had a stroke, you, you um, were on the ventilator or something, you know, God forbid, happened. And what's good is that this person, their job is not to do what they want for you. This, this, their job is to do what they think you would want for yourself. They're your voice. So you pick someone who knows your beliefs, who would respect your beliefs. And that's really important. And so the healthcare representative, you can have an alternate person too. And then the Indiana Healthcare Directive is something that you can also fill out that is sort of like a living will in this document. But what's great is you fill this out and then you make copies and you give them to your doctors. And if you ever go to the hospital, you have this in your glove box and your loved ones can take it in and give it to your team so that your wishes are gonna be respected. And so your doctors know your values and preferences. This is a great way to advocate for yourself and to give you a feeling of peace and to help your family. So I really encourage these things. And something what I do in my consultations with patients is I walk through them with these documents. Every state's a little bit different. Um, and it's so neat that you have this great Catholic guide for Catholics. Because as you know, doctors were infamous for not communicating well. And so that you won't know what's going on. So I have a little story to um, illustrate that. So we have Mr. Norton. He's in the hospital recovering from an operation when the nurse on duty receives a call from a man who asked how Mr. Norton was doing. Oh, quite well. We expect he'll be released in the morning. Very good. Thank you, he replied. May I ask who is calling so I may tell Mr. Norton, inquired the nurse. This is Mr. Norton. The nurses don't tell me a darn thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's sad that he has to call and ask. Uh, and so communication and advocacy for patients is really my goal. I really want people to understand and to feel empowered that they know what's going on and they're a part of their healthcare team. And so when we think about when is it appropriate to get palliative medicine to maybe see you or see your loved one? Think when you've got a new serious or life-limiting diagnosis, you have a chronic illness that's worsening, you're in the hospital a lot, um, you have a lot of psychosocial stressors, maybe there's a lot of stress with your family that's going on that's impacting your health. Um, you have a lot of symptoms related to it. You feel like your doctors aren't listening to you. Um, there's a lot of ways that they might be able to help you or help your loved one. And so requesting your doctor to refer you to a palliative medicine specialist, or if you're in the hospital, a lot of times there's a palliative medicine team, um, ask them to see your loved one. And what can you expect from palliative care when you see them? So medications, um, they might be able to help connect you with community resources or support groups. Um, they might be able to help you get involved with palliative care at home or maybe hospice if that's appropriate. They might be able to help clarify what's going on, help you fill out documents, um, go through, uh, have a family meeting. If there's people in your family like your sibling is saying that your mom should get this treatment but you don't feel mom wants that treatment and you're at odds, they can really help with clarifying and getting all the family on the same page. So I think it's, it's I'm going to take a minute now and kind of define what, what palliative medicine, how it's different than hospice care in specific, because I think a lot of people use those words also, sort of in a, interchangeably. And we're really trying to get away from that. And so in the top bar, you see that uh, this is sort of the older model. 
So let's say we get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And your doctor says, okay, this is the chemotherapy we're going to give you, you know, full steam ahead, um, this is what we're doing. And then at some point, he tells you, chemotherapy's not working, or um, there's nothing more we can do. And then you transition to something like, you know, end-of-life care or something, because there's medicine is, we're done. And that's really jarring for people. That's really difficult. Um, it's very sudden, and, 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 and maybe you don't feel, like, empowered or communicated with. And so we've switched that model to be much more, I think, merciful and helpful, beneficial. And that's that integrated approach. So the orange is meant to be palliative care involvement. And the yellow is just that traditional aggressive care. So in the second line, we get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We start with our aggressive chemotherapy. But right at the beginning, your doctor refers you to palliative medicine. So you meet with them. Maybe you don't have many symptoms. Maybe you're not that stressed out. Maybe you're doing OK. So you don't really need them very much. But over time, you might develop more symptoms. Maybe you have side effects from the chemotherapy. Maybe um, your, your, your kids are having a really hard time with this. You could get benefits from the palliative care team. And then over time, eventually, the chemotherapy may not be helping very much. And so eventually, palliative care, you know, more and more support. They, they, they're more active in your health until eventually you might transition to say, I don't want to do chemotherapy anymore. I want to focus on comfort and quality of life with my family at home. I don't want to go back and forth to the hospital. I don't want to keep going to doctor's appointments because they're not fixing what's going on. This is an infix unfixable problem, and I'd rather focus on just living my life and getting feeling comfortable. And at that point, that's when you transition to hospice care. So palliative medicine, I view it as this big umbrella of support and quality of life focus, which is a shared philosophy as hospice, but hospice is when we're not doing any aggressive cares anymore. We're not um, going back and forth to the hospital. We're focused just, just on your comfort. That's our top priority. And so that's more in the home setting, but it can take place in a lot of settings as well. Does that sort of make sense? So it's sort of a subset, so not using the words interchangeably. And so there's different myths, and I think I have to keep moving with time, but you know, hospice isn't a place. Hospice doesn't mean we give up. I tell people it's, we reframe the fight. What are we fighting for? Are we fighting for a cure? That's not a fight, That's, we're gonna win. Are we fighting for good days? Are we fighting for, for quality time with family? Are we fighting for no pain? Those are fights worth having, and let's fight for those as aggressive as we can. I'm still being aggressive. I'm still working on giving you the best care possible, and that's what I can do with hospice in your home. So it sort of just depends where you're at with your illness and what your goals are. If you're on hospice, you can always go off of it. It's not like you're stuck on it. If you feel that some patients actually, they do better on hospice and they graduate from it. You know, you can actually be on hospice for months to years. I know some people, I had this 101-year-old patient this week. Her family's like, well, I think she's ready to go back on hospice, but she's already been on it twice and she keeps doing better and not needing it. I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> um, and so I really feel like good palliative care can be the antidote to so much of the suffering. When we have this multidisciplinary approach, it aims to give value to the individual person and help give meaning to their experience of disease and suffering. And so physician-assisted suicide directly undermines the goals of palliative care. It really gives no value to what I do, and it's very, very disheartening to me. And you know what? The popes agree. And uh, the last three popes have all written about palliative medicine and about how we should promote it and support it. Um, so this is um, Pope Emeritus Benedict talking about um, palliative care centers should be supported. 
Pope Francis talks about palliative care recognizing the value at the end of life. And so in closing, in thinking about what dying in this world should be, I talked a lot about what it, what it is and the situations today. What it should be is helping patients prepare for the end of this life and the beginning of eternal life. And some people call the field that I do, the field in the work that I do, being a midwife for the soul. You know, you're helping that person prepare for that next place. And I feel if, if I'm not out there doing it, who is? We need more Catholics, you know, in this field doing it. And so, what can you do? I would say stay informed on these important issues. Complete these advanced directives. That's a big gift you can give your family. Share them with your doctors. And then pray because physician-assisted suicide is coming up in a lot of states around our country. It is the pro-life you know, issue that we really need to gather energy behind and advocacy and prayer um, because it, it really is changing healthcare. And so in closing, I always like to bring things back to our Blessed Mother. And if you would uh, join me for a memorari. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do we come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate. Despise not my petition, but in your mercy, hear and answer me. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate this and having the opportunity to come. If anyone is interested in further resources or other information, uh, it's on that yellow sheet, or you can come and talk to me after. And I think we have a little time for questions. Yeah.